This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. I got Kevin Farron with me tonight. He is, he works for Montana Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. You're the only employee for a state chapter. Is that right? Close. So up until a couple of years ago, that was the case, or about a year and a half ago. Um, but now I have a counterpart who's actually our chapter coordinator working out of Billings. Oh, damn. The same yeah. state has two. Yes. And I actually oversee our uh, policy efforts in Montana, North and South Dakota now. So a couple of little changes. Oh, um, oh. Montana's still my, my baby. Oh, when did that happen? Uh, about a month ago. Oh, do you travel over there? I haven't yet. As you all hear, we have the Montana legislative session going on right now. So it's it's pretty hot and heavy, and it's it's hard for me to find time to get over to the Dakotas right, right now. Who's the Billings person? Her name's Veronica Corbett. I've heard that name. I think she may even have come over here at one point. I think John Kuntz has interacted with her. I believe so, yeah. Okay, so the legislative session in Montana is always a reason for concern amongst the sportsmen, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an understatement. It, it, a lot of bad a lot of bad shit gets proposed in Helena. Most of it never comes true. And I'd say that's in part to your efforts, Kevin, and I applaud you there. Uh, and what we're going to be doing tonight is going over some of the some of the proposed legislation. So this is going to be a very Montana-centric episode, but these issues are pressing enough that they warrant attention on my national podcast. So with that, oh, and we'll probably, Kevin and I know each other quite well, and we we scream at each other quite a bit, uh, but we're not going to do that tonight at all. We we put Pinky Sword to be nice uh, when it comes to our differences opinion about what BHA should be doing. Um, so we might, but we so we might del- delve into my pet topics a, t- a tiny bit. But the, I think the real value here is going to be getting a sense for what we stand to lose or gain in this legislative session. So with that, Kevin, yeah, lay out some stuff. Yeah, Matt. And again, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think you and I agree on far, far more than we disagree on. And I think that's probably true from the sporting community in general. Um, and I, you know, just to address the elephant in the room, like, you, you know, you and I agree that there definitely are some issues with hunter crowding on public lands across the West and Montana is no exception. Um, and just to like oversimplify kind of where you and I don't see eye to eye is that you have your take on how the problem should be addressed. And I have my take and that is essentially, we can't get that cat back in the bag. You know, I feel like with technology out there telling you where to hunt, how to hunt, 
how to navigate the draw odds and then entire platforms making it look incredibly sexy. I just don't think there's ever anything we can do by boycotting a certain brand or a certain social media influencer to get that behavior or those sort of business models to to cease to exist. I just think that they're going to be they're going to be replaced if anything with something else overnight. But what I want to focus my efforts on and what BHA focuses their effort efforts on is the the denominator of the problem, right? Because you look at hunter crowding and it's it's a calculation of number of hunters divided by number of acres of quality habitat that's publicly accessible. I think that's kind of a safe way to look at it. And I'm sure you and I can agree with that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what we do at BHA is mostly focus on that bottom number, which includes improving quality habitat on publicly accessible lands, sticking up for conservation funding on both public and private, trying to increase public access, again, both to our public lands, but also trying to increase public access to private lands as well. And so that's where we spend the majority of our time. And I just wanted to talk to your listeners, specifically folks in Montana, about some things happening right now that folks can have a very real impact on. Because I know at times it's easy to get frustrated that we're complaining about this or that, and nothing ever seems to change or get better. But here's our opportunity. It happens for 90 days every other year. Here's our opportunity to engage and actually try to get some wins or to defeat, you know, some pretty bad ideas to make sure that we're working on that numerator and denominator number here um, as it relates to, to hunter crowding, you know, something that we can all be happy about. Um, so, you know, there's like probably a handful of bills, Matt, that I want to bring to your attention and, you know, we can pause and kind of talk about each one, but I'll, I'll start with Senate bill 58. This one's really easy to understand. So, this one um, was an idea that actually we first started pushing and supporting last legislative session in 2019, sorry, 2021. And at the beginning of that session, the max payment cap for block management, which is Montana's program that our state fish and game administers, they basically use license fees to compensate and to encourage or incentivize private landowners to open their properties to public hunting access. And the cap on that was 15,000 at the start of last session. So that's the the high end of what a landowner could be given to enroll their property in block management. We were able to support efforts to raise that to 25,000 last session. And why that's important is because as you know, Matt, and your, your followers know damn well, we're keeping up with the Joneses here when it comes to the value of these hunting lands. And when you see these lease rates go up or more lands go into private leases, we can sit back and complain about that. We can try to boycott certain things that, you know, encourage that or allow that, or we can work on it from the other side, which is trying to stay competitive with a public access program. I don't think it's an either or. That's true. Okay. Um, Not an either or, but we're definitely going to be focusing on the, the you know the incentive side and so that's what we pushed last session and we're right back at it again and so in an effort to keep pace with the leasing rates um and also recognizing that you know property values in montana are going up which means property taxes are going up and landowners are forced with a tough question of whether they you know are forced to subdivide or to develop their property or if they can 
leave it undeveloped, provide good quality habitat? And if so, you know, how do they make a living doing that? How can they pay those taxes? And so by increasing the block management payments, that's one way they can hopefully recoup some of those costs. And we can encourage that sort of behavior that keeps Montana looking like Montana. So Senate Bill 58 would take the existing 25,000 cap and double that to 50,000. Um, and so that's working its way through the legislative session right now. Uh, it's getting a ton of bipartisan support. Um, in certain instances, it's been um, unanimous. You know, it, it passed the Senate fishing game and the Senate finance and claims unanimously. Um, it passed the Senate floor by votes of 45 to three and 45 to four. So you can just see the overwhelming support it's getting in Helena right now. So that's pretty outstanding to see. What did, so, what did Montana uh, Association of Guides and Outfitters, where was their take on it? Um, you know, I think, um, don't, don't quote me on this, but I, I can promise you they didn't oppose it. And I'm fairly certain they supported it. I just don't um, recall specifically during that testimony. They, they've showed up on a number of bills this year. And we've actually been working really well with MOGA this year. Um, but that one, I can't speak with confidence whether they supported it or just stayed kind of neutral. I think I'm pretty certain they did support it, though. So it's, you know, it's it's not perfect. There's definitely some other issues that need to be worked out with block management. Namely, we got to look at how we're compensating these people, like how that calculation is factored in. You know, right now it's primarily based on hunter opportunity, hunter use days. And so, you know, a landowner is compensated based on the number of people they let hunting, they let go hunting. And we're trying to, through rulemaking, encourage a different calculation that has takes that into consideration, sure, but also looks at the quality of the opportunity. Because yeah. in our minds, you know, a, a really good ranch that allows five hunters a day and they each get a really good opportunity to shoot an elk or a nice deer or something to us and to elk management, really. That's more valuable than a landowner with poor quality habitat who, you know, just has an open gate policy that they allow 200 people per day um, because there's not going to be critters on there. There probably won't be the harvests and it's really not the experience that really any hunter wants. So um, anyway, still work to be done there. But, you know, again, if we're talking about trying to increase that bottom number of huntable acres, that's a really good way to make sure that properties stay in block management and hopefully incentivize new properties to consider it too. So again, you, know, you know about my group, uh, Montana Hunters for Access. Yeah. R remind us what you guys are doing. For so I, I, I call it my group because I'm a founding member, but John Koontz, who's on the podcast quite a bit, is the yeah. president. So we raised through raffles and a pint night and stuff like that. We raised mm, eight grand, I think, about eight grand in the last few months and we're going to block management appreciation dinner this Tuesday in B mile city. And then that's February 28th. And then we're going to another one in Glendive on March 2nd. These are dinners that are hosted by Montana fish, wildlife and parks to say thank you to participants in the program landowners that participate in the program and we're going to go there and swag the shit out of those guys we're going to give out a couple calf shelters we got a whole pile of gift certificates to local farm and ranch st stores 
We're also going to be taking sign-ups by from ranchers that might want be interested in having us come out and do a work project next summer. We got 30 people so far that have signed up to donate a day of labor next summer. So um, we'll be going out and doing these work projects on these participating ranches as a way to say thank you. I guess our hope, the the bet we're making is that maybe maybe just some appreciation will help. You know, just saying thanks. It's not it's not as much as they could get from an outfitter, but you know, we're just about making sure the local guy has a place to go. You know, and a lot of a lot of people that hunt these places aren't local guys, but some of them are, and local guys are getting pushed out, and they're get, having less and less play, place to go every year because of fucking land trust and leasing and all that bullshit. Um, but uh, you know, another piece that needs to that could help, I think, would be we gotta do something about hunter behavior. You took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, like, thank you for all those appreciation efforts you're doing. You know, I, I really think that a little bit there goes a long way. Um, and we need to be doing more of that across the board. Um, so what, what you're doing, what we're doing here legislatively, you know, these are all great and dandy, but you're right. One bad apple is going to ruin it for everybody. So we're also working on ways to kind of stiffen up some of the um, penalties associated with failure to obtain permission to hunt which is what someone would be cited with if they're not following the rules on a block management property, for example. Oh, um, wait, as a, what is it called again? Failure to what? To obtain permission to hunt. Oh, you can use that statute for somebody that did obtain permission, but is breaking the rules. Correct. Because their permission. Um, Ends when they start the standing. They... Yeah. It's under the standing. Okay. They follow these rules. And so if they don't, okay. then they fail to get that permission. So it's also, how you know hunters are held to a different standard in Montana as far as trespassing goes. So anybody can be cited for trespassing. It doesn't matter what they're doing. If the property's posted and they kind of like, you know, willfully and knowingly walk across that posted property, right? Mm-hmm. Well, hunters are held to a different standard where we're expected to know where we are, whether it's posted or not. But if we're caught, quote unquote, trespassing on a property that wasn't posted, we can't get cited for trespassing we can get cited for failure to obtain permission to hunt though so you know it's up to the hunter the honest is on us to figure out where we're at to use you know gps software and whatever you know to to make sure that we're confident that we're where we should be and not where we shouldn't be um but anyway i couldn't agree with you more we're also working on other ways with the department um sounds like they're putting together a little bit of a a think group um to kind of hash out some other ways that we can try to tweak our, our hunter's ed or have another kind of course that focuses more on landowner relationships and just some of the behavior that, you know, we as Montanans like take for granted, but maybe a lot of non-residents might not necessarily know the etiquette around closing gates or leaving gates open if they're open or, you know, which yeah. roads. And, then, on, and that may be, that may be true. But I also hear from like the Todd Anderson's the region seven head warden. And he's always, he's come on the podcast a couple of times. He said, surprisingly, it's very often the low it's resident hunters that are the worst. Absolutely. I think everyone can use a little bit of education and reminder there. So I don't want to paint anybody unfairly, but the, the problem definitely needs to be addressed on many different angles. If we expect this sort of program to continue. Yeah. Um, uh, I have some like damning uh, numbers. Tell me a little it. more about this. What do you know about this? Uh, what do you, what do you, what would you call it? Exploratory group or whatever that's looking at ways to encourage better behavior. 
Yeah, so there's actually some legislative efforts that would do that. But as far as the education side, um, you know, the department. The has, legislative efforts being the one you just mentioned. The, around failure to obtain permission to hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and the, uh, on the education side, the department has definitely expressed willingness to put together a group of stakeholders, you know, which most likely will be folks from the, the hunting and conservation community, you know, orgs like, orgs like BHA. Um, but then also folks from the ag community. So Montana stock growers, Montana farm bureau, then also hunters ed instructors, um, and kind of let us get in a room together, put our heads together and figure out what's needed, what the best way is to deliver that curriculum, whether it's a requirement, whether it's an incentive based approach where someone gets like an extra, you know, these are just ideas at this point, but someone gets, gets like an extra preference point or a bonus point, you know, if they take that course, or maybe it's a requirement if you're going to hunt properties enrolled in public access, you know, private properties. Um, but maybe it's optional for people who just hunt public lands or just hunt exclusive private lands anyway, you know, that's, that aren't enrolled in public access. We're still trying to figure all that out, but, but definitely. Man, that would like I, about a year ago, I was pushing hard for something like this uh, with PLPW, the public lands, private wildlife or private lands, public wildlife yep. board. Um, so I'm glad to hear. I didn't, and then I was, and I also, I, so I, I gave testimony with them and then I contacted, had a couple discussions with our, the region seven book board, uh, board member for the game commission about it. And like the thing that was kept, the, the thing I kept hearing is we don't want to pass, we don't want to pass laws or increase requirements. What I was bucking for was a compulsory training component. If you want to make hunt private lands made accessible through government programs. And I still think that's the solution. I don't know. I, I don't, I can't conceive of another way other than more strict laws. Yes, that's great. But in, from an education standpoint, it almost has to be compul. It has to be compulsory because the people that fuck it all up aren't going to take a voluntary course. Correct. Yep. And that's, that's some of the same feedback we push back on when, when people say that this should be voluntary, you know, as like, or even it, that it would be an incentive based approach. Um, is that in my mind, I can understand why it doesn't need to be a requirement for any hunter, but I think if you're going to participate in the privilege that is publicly accessible private land, then making that a requirement in my mind is a hundred percent reasonable. I agree. So, I agree with that wholeheartedly yeah it shouldn't it should be if, if you want to hunt black management take this three-hour course if, yep. yeah you know not, you know and i think a ha half that time should be devoted to very specific allegories like you used to be able to hunt the smith place they were in black management for 15 years but then blah 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 happened and now you can't you know because even people yeah, at least that, a couple examples to hammer at home for sure yeah because even people so, that are just completely lacking in respect might think, well, you know, I do want to have some place to go next year. So maybe I'll just do what's right. So, you know, just a, from a reward, strict reward punishment standpoint, the lowest form of morality might inspire them to do the right thing. I don't know. Yep. And it's hunter ethics, hunter behaviors, a really tough thing to legislate 
and to, to control, you know, and I really think that it's up to us as a community to try to police our own ranks and kind of shame and educate and, and do what we can, because I think that's where we're going to have the best outcomes here. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely a tricky one, man. And I, I'm embarrassed very often as a hunter, when I look around at my fellow hunters and some of the behavior, I see some of the photos I see shared online, some of the stories I, I hear and, yeah. we, you know, we can and need to do better. Yeah. Um, but Hey, just a couple more things about the block management thing before we jump. Um, you know, I do want to give credit where credit's due. And I forgot to mention that that Senate bill 58 is being sponsored by, um, Senator, Senator Heinbaugh. He's a Republican out of Weibo. He's also the chair of the Senate Fishing Game Committee. So, um, you know, we don't always see eye to eye with Senator Heimbaugh, and there's actually going to be a bill that I'm going to talk about um, that we don't like that he's carrying. But on this one, he definitely deserves credit. And this was a big collaborative effort to get it to where it is now. You know, it started with a lot of sportsmen's groups supporting it. And then it went to the mention groups, you said PLPW, and then it went to the Department of FDP. And then this is actually one of the department bills that Senator Heimbaugh agreed to carry. Um, and so somebody of, approached him about this, carrying this bill. Correct. So the department would have gone to him and said, Hey, we have this bill. Would you be willing to put your name on it and sponsor it? And he agreed to, which is great. Um, and again, having the chair of the Senate fishing game committee, um, with his name on this bill makes it pretty powerful. Okay. So, so we're optimistic. And, you know, yeah. one other thing, giving credit where credit's due on this one, the, when you're talking about like doubling the payment cap, there's, there's good questions about like, well, how are we going to pay for that? Right. Well, a couple things to note, like we are at pretty much um, record sales, like we're pretty flush right now for non-resident licensed dollars. And that's where this money's coming from. So that's part of it. The other part of it is Representative Marler. Um, she's a Democrat out of Missoula. She actually passed, I believe this was in 2019, it just had a kind of a delayed effective date. She passed legislation that allowed hunters to voluntarily contribute their refunds from their license fees. Yeah, I've been doing that. Do block management. Yeah. And last year, you know, with very little advertising or like heads up to people explaining what this was, it was just kind of there as a checks box. Um, it brought in $218,000 to block management, just that simple little change. So Representative Marler deserves a ton of credit for that, as do all the hunters who contributed to that. You know, non-residents, you're talking like <laughs> chump change, like $4 refund, like not even worth the check, right? So we're happy to donate those sort of things, but there were actually a number of non-residents that donated their entire license cost too, because they have to front that. And, you know, I think some did it accidentally, but um, I say, I think some did it and then we're aware of it and we're given the option to, you know, undo what they did and still elected to donate the entire amount to block management. So kudos all around for the, the money that's there that makes that sort of increase available that would end up in the hands of landowners. Yeah. Yep. And just, you know, before we move on that, like the, the reality is that there's more than seven or close to 7 million acres of block management property enrolled in Montana right now, which is just incredible. Right. But yeah, that's, it's down a bit. Yeah, it's exactly. really I like, I just had, I just had, uh, uh, Jason cool, the head of the block management program on the podcast. And it's, it's more like 6 million at its peak. It was 7 million. So yeah, I think in 2018 are the last numbers that they like published that they were confident in. It was like 7.1. But um he sent me also, I he sent me all the all the data. Okay. For, for the I do know that they're down 1.5 million acres in the last uh 12 years since 2010. So they definitely have been on a downward trajectory. And 
I think there's three reasons why. Um, like we mentioned, the poor hunter hunting behavior. promotion, hunting promotion, and hunting promotion. <laughs> Here's some other things to consider, though: the poor hunter behavior and the increasing lease rates, which you you will point to hunting promotion as the reason for those increasing lease rates. And we're not here to argue about that. Um, but the uh, the third thing too is the land ownership changes. You know, that's yeah. that's a big thing that we don't talk about enough. And that's part of hunting promotion too. It could um, be. Oh, I definitely think it is. I yeah. definitely, I definitely think that glamorous hunting footage makes rich people want to buy land. Yeah, so, and I'm not going to disagree. I will also just say that a big chunk of the block management and rolled acres that we have in the state are actually um, timberlands, and a lot of those have been sold in the last few years with different ownership and different varying levels of interest as far as getting back into block management or not. So that's actually been a big part of the reason why we've seen a drop off there. Um, but there's plenty of factors and it's just important that we look at this holistically and we're trying to address it from all different sides and not just, you know, villainizing one thing or, or just picking on trying to improve one thing. Cause if we do that, it's not going to get really any better. We have to, we have to, you know, push that tide that raises all these ships together. Um, so we, it's funny, we started out talking about how legis- legislative session makes us nervous. Yep. And then the first thing we talk about is it's a, a good one. It's a, a positive thing. Yeah. So what's I mean, next? Do you want me to keep, keep it positive before I get negative or do you want oh, me to fuck back and forth? No, cause then I'll just know, then I'll just know that there's something negative looming. Why don't we do the negative ones? And then if you got any more good ones and we'll end on those. Okay. Is that all right? We can do that. Sure. Okay. So, so let's, yeah, let's um, go. Let's just break. Let's break my heart. Let's break all my right. Heart. So let's talk about new access in Montana. So recently at the federal level, we all celebrated the permanent and full funding of the federal land and water conservation fund. Um, so this uses offshore oil and gas royalties to the tune of $900 million per year to help fund new public land acquisitions among other things. Um, in Montana, we've seen these dollars put to use um, just east of Missoula, um, down by Wisdom in the Big Hole recently, in the northwest corner of the state um, for acquisitions and uh, new conservation easements. And then at the state level, though. Oh, like program- talk a little bit about those projects. Yeah, so some of them, um, you know, like the one I'm thinking of down by Wisdom was spearheaded by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And so the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is a land trust. So when they have a a landowner who is sympathetic to the Elk Coalition's cause, um, sometimes that landowner will donate the property to the Elk Foundation entirely with the expectation that the Elk Foundation will work to try to get that um, to be taken over by public ownership, or that landowner will sell to the Elk Foundation at a discount um, because, again, they're sympathetic and they're supportive of the cause. But again, with the understanding that the Elk Coalition, or sorry, the Elk Foundation would then work with the federal government um, to acquire that property and put it in public hands. And so that's what we that's what we see happening here um, down in the big hole where a, a giant chunk that opened up significant public access national forest land. Um, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation worked for years to help facilitate that because, as we know, the federal government works at a pretty slow pace. and Different conservation groups, including Montana BHA, you know, submitted letters of support and pushed when we need to push to make sure that that got ranked as a priority. And it was just acquired and made final last fall. So something we can all celebrate there. 
That's um, awesome. Yep. And then up in the Northwest corner, a new tool in the toolbox was being utilized. And that's the form of a fish and wildlife service conservation easement. So that allowed the timber company to actually keep the private ownership to keep it, um, you know, a working landscape that they can continue to, in a sustainable way, harvest timber from the property. But they actually got a lump sum that allowed them to then open public access in perpetuity and, you know, push back on development in perpetuity as well. Bam. So that's, yeah, it's, it's a really great thing. But at the state level, that was just kind of an introduction. So at the state level, you know, something that we have that's kind of similar to LWCF, what we use, what the state of Montana uses to fund similar acquisitions and conservation easements is a program called Habitat Montana. And this is funded primarily by those out-of-state licenses again. Um, but it's also matched either two to one or sometimes to the tune of three to one from the federal Pittman Robinson dollars. And uh, pot money right now, right? Yes. So just bear with me. So that's how the program has been funded for a while. Um, and recently, uh, to 2021, actually 2020, the fall of 2020, the Montana voters passed an initiative to legalize recreational marijuana with the understanding that the taxes collected from that would go towards conservation efforts, among other things. And then the reality is that the voters can say that that's what they want, but the legislature has the power to appropriate those funds and to really make the decisions of how that money actually gets spent. So just a few months after that initiative passed, the legislature signaled their intent to get rid of it all. Um, oh, man. It took, it took if a they lot do of that, If they do that, I'm done smoking weed. <laughs> I think a lot of people kind of feel slighted about that because I know a lot of, a lot of people who voted for the initiative that aren't really, you know, weed smokers or supportive of that, but they were like, you know what, if this, if this allows Habitat Montana and other programs to be funded, then what the hell? Um, so the, the thing is, last session we fought tooth and nail to, to, to basically save half of what the voters had intended with that initiative. And so where we left it with HB 701 signed by Governor Gianforte, was 20% of the recreational marijuana tax money going towards Habitat Montana. So, and that's significant. You know, that's that's $30 million or so every biennium, every two years. And that's in addition to those um, license dollars that we talked about earlier. Yeah. So, and, you know, why is that extra money needed? Well, one, it's what the voters wanted, and that's what the legislature passed, and it's what the governor signed in the law. But as we talked about block management, it's needed because if we're looking at doing more acquisitions or more conservation easements, we have to recognize the increasing property values in Montana, the increased pressures for development. And the reality is if we want to reward conservation and reward property owners who voluntarily, you know, enroll in public access, we need to make sure we're compensating for that and keeping up with the Joneses. So that's why that extra money is really needed. And the, um, you know, it's it's such a great tool because it allows Montana to stay Montana. You know, it keeps these undeveloped working lands in the family. Um, it prevents them from needing to be subdivided or sold entirely. So, and, yeah, with the Habitat Montana program, just mm -hmm. for, for the listener, they the the a ranch decides they want to they want to be considered for the program or they want to go into the program. And if it yeah. all gets approved and as it gets approved by the land board and the land board's a bunch of a-holes that are always fighting against approving them for whatever reason. But 
um, they get approved, they get 40% of the value of the ranch, correct? I'm not exactly sure on the final numbers, and I think it varies. Um, That's the figure that the I hear thrown around. Of the and, and there's a few of them around here that have gone into this. These There's a few ranches around here that have gone gone into the program in the last several years and that's what they got was a was 40 percent and they have to institute some conservation measures that's one stipulation and they have to allow some public access is the other stipulation i'm just laying this out there for people that might not know this stuff they have to do it in perpetuity as well and it has to be yes yep and so you know when you're a landowner you're faced with potentially having to sell your property because you can't afford it anymore right yeah um you made some it's bad like, you made some bad decisions on the cattle market or whatever. Yeah, plenty of different reasons why people could be in that situation, but it's nice that we have a whole menu of options for them. You know, whether it's short-term kind of uh conservation incentives from the farm bill, you know, things like CRP or they could be um you know, there's actually short-term easements offered by Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of an oxymoron because easements are supposed to be yeah. perpetual. Um, but then there's also different sort of land trusts, right? There's there's some federal land trusts, you know, that can put an easement on your property. There's um, private ones that you can put an easement on your property and not have to deal with any public access at all. And then there's this one from FDP using Habitat Montana dollars that does require that public access component. But because of that, it pays a pretty penny. It's probably the most lucrative for landowners. Um, in terms of different easements they can put on their property. And so that's why it's really important that we continue to make sure there's money available for that if a landowner decides that that's the best route for them. Um, but again, it's totally up to them. Nothing's forced on them. They Here's here's your whole a la carte menu. You know, you pick what you want and it's a private property, right? And it's something we're going to support, you know, till we're blue in the face talking about how great this program is. And just recently, you know, the governor, Gene Forte, he... Um, you know, he deserves a ton of credit for both his votes on the land board for both the big snowies wildlife management area. And in addition to the Mount Hagen WMA, you know, both of these were. So yeah, that's something that I don't fully understand. So one of these easements can become then a wildlife management area. Sorry. So the, the, the the money from Habitat Montana primarily funds two different things. One of them is an easement that, that stays in private ownership, whether it's a ranch, property or whether it's timber, you know, a private timber company holding that that's theirs. It stays in private ownership, but there's a conservation requirements and public access requirements in perpetuity. On the other hand, it also funds acquisitions. And so we talked about LWCF funding acquisitions for like the block, you know, for the Bureau of Land Management, right? BLM properties. Well, this funds acquisitions for Montana FWP, our state fishing game. And so they can use it to acquire new wildlife management areas is the best example okay yeah it becomes so an, they, in effect it's becomes st- the lwcf dollars or wherever the money comes from that goes into habitat montana is then used to take private land and turn it into state land yep and it doesn't come from lwcf that's the federal version of this the okay. state version of habitat montana is funded right. from licensed dollars and now well, like hopefully we can hold on to it from people who like to to roll the joints and and and, uh, you know, hit the bong on the weekend. So, um, the, both of those programs this fall are great examples of what this program is capable of. And again, some of us like to do it during the week too. 
you know, hey, man, that's totally fine. We don't need to start talking about my my habits. Um, I, I promise you that I would have been contributing quite a lot. I'm only doing it for the cause, man. I'm only doing yeah. it for the so. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Governor Gene Forte, you know, not only did he was he on the right end of votes for both of those, you know, with his position on the land board, but he really deserves a ton of credit because if you watch those hearings, he really helped direct the rest of the land board to make the right decision there. Oh, and that's cool. The uh, the, the Mount Hagen uh, was 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 razor thin. It was approved by a three to two vote, and the big snowies was four to one. Um, our Attorney General uh, Knutson, he was kind of the stick in the mud on both of those. And he just flat out said, like, he's against the state owning lands. And he was even quoted saying something along the lines of, you know, he'd rather see this property be split up into 30 acre ranchettes for people moving here from California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't think he liked that he had to answer for that, but that's exactly what he said. Mm-hmm. So, so um, that, okay. That, but that's interesting to me. So that's proved to be an unpopular stance. It, I think so. At least from the people that were paying attention that wanted to see that happen, they were a little surprised but that was the pushback he was given. It wasn't yeah. about the merits of the property or, you know, was it whether this was a good use of money. It was just that he just inherently is against the idea of the state owning, you know, property. And he which is not a-, a politically untenable position. Like 2% of Texas is public. And like Ted Cruz has said, that's 2% too, ma- too much, right? So it's like, you know what I mean? It's like I would argue it's, I would argue it's huge... pretty unpopular here in Montana. What's that? that? I would argue that position is pretty unpopular here in Montana. That good to hear. Yeah, good to hear. Yeah. Yep. And you know, for those of you that were at the public lands rally last week, I think you'll you'll agree. Um, but anyway, the so that's what Habitat Montana does. That's where the existing money comes from. That's where this new addition of money comes from. And what we're faced with now, the legislature, is once again, you know, we already trimmed it down from around 40% of the tax revenue going to Habitat Montana to 20%. And now the governor's budget and uh, Representative Bertoglio, a Republican from Clancy, she's carrying a bill that mirrors the governor's budget, and it completely strikes out that Habitat Montana money from the What do you mean it mirrors the governor's budget? So the governor proposes his budget. He basically sends that as a message to uh, lawmakers in Helena. The governor doesn't have the power of the purse, though. The governor doesn't get to decide the state's budget. He can put forward something and say, "Hey, uh, here's so, what, like, same here's at the what my level, ideal like, budget would look like." Yeah, yep. yeah. And you know, typically, where the legislature lands, you know, if they're both being controlled you know, if they're, they're by the same party, usually it it kind of sticks to that a little bit, right? It can vary a little bit, but for the most part, that's that's a guiding light. Um, same thing happens at the federal level, right? The president's budget, the legislature can kind of do what they want, whether they totally disregard that or they try to appease it. And um, what we see here is Representative Bertoglio basically introducing legislation that is verbatim what the governor's budget asked for. And what that is, is is striking out the recreational marijuana revenue from Habitat Montana entirely. Um, and so that was heard a couple of weeks ago. Typically, a hearing in Helena will last, you know, they really do vary. Sometimes it's 30 minutes, sometimes they're an hour and a half, just depending on what's on the agenda. Um, that was three and a half hours. We heard Yeah, a lot which was longer than the... I, I listened in on a bunch of it. I was going to testify. I think that... I remember, like, the chairman being like, 40 minutes for the again, and 40 minutes for the in in support. 
group. Yeah, the proponents and opponents. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to limit it right away when they looked around and saw how many people were in the room in the hallway. Um, but anyway, so that just tells you like how important this is for folks. But um just listening to that, I only listened to the people that were against it, and I even had to cut that short, like it was going slow. I just had to I had a thing I had to do. Oh, I had a podcast. <laughs> but man, I was like, there's no way that this that this money's gonna stay in the coffers because everybody that was testifying in the in the habitat montana because everybody that was testifying were you in on this mm-hmm. you were listening yep okay so just, yeah, just, just testimony yeah so everybody that was testifying that we should take these dollars out of the habitat montana and direct them elsewhere was arguing we're arguing that those dollars should be used for mental health and law enforcement and i was like how are these people not going to win they got veterans saying that we need the money for veteran to support the veterans. We've got police officers saying that they're overwhelmed. We've got mental health professionals saying that they need support, that we have a severe mental health crisis in the state. I'm like, I almost half got convinced. You know, I'm not convinced. At the end of the day, I'm like, yeah. at the end of the day, I think, Maybe if mom and dad had some place to take Johnny to hunt when he was a kid, he wouldn't get he wouldn't be Johnny wouldn't be getting in so much trouble to begin with. What do you, you know? When we, were, when we were aware of some of the proponents of the bill, too, you know, honestly, that was one of my first reactions too. is how great would it be to have a mental health professional talk about um, the mental you know benefits of open, undeveloped space in montana oh yeah wildlands and you know outdoor activities and outdoor recreation and all the things that this habitat montana program um allows because to me that that's a ever and like increasingly important um part of our mental health in this country um but anyway you know to get back to your point matt like you're right like the other side you know definitely had really good points about why they need more funding for these sort of things um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna disagree at all I would just say that it's really unfortunate that we're being forced into the conversation where we're pitting a number of really good programs that all deserve to be funded and all have funding needs. So we're talking, we're fighting over this $30 million, um, you know, every other year when Montana is looking at a surplus of $2.5 billion right now. Mm. The, the fact that we're being forced into having this argument and putting, you know, veteran tiny and fraction of the budget against yeah. people that want to you know respect private property rights and keep montana montana you know and and access some of the 3.1 million acres we can't get to in the state um you know it's just unfortunate and so that's the message we're trying to send to the governor's office and to the legislature right now is like this is unnecessary let's figure out a way to fund all this stuff because we we should and, and quite frankly we can um so that's kind of what I would encourage folks to pay attention to, because, you know, we talk about access and actual like number of acres that would become publicly accessible or publicly owned here. The Habitat Montana program here in Montana is our best tool for working on that bottom number of huntable acres. You know, like the big snowy one, for example, you know, that that's a, it was like close to 6,000 acres. I think it was about 5,600, somewhere in there. Um, the actual like deeded property that was purchased, that's going to be turned into the wildlife management area. But what it does is it opens up um, a complex of existing public lands that are over, there's over 100,000 acres of public lands that it opens up. 
That's and this, awesome. The properties, you know, and, and a side into the the snowies range or the big snowies where there is virtually no public access. So it's incredibly needed. The actual WMA that's going to be created borders the Wilkes. You know, it's in a district that's something like 1000% over elk objective because there's so many elk um, on some of those large private ranches. And so just from any angle you look at, it's such a win. And, you know, when when hunters are worried about not having enough places to go, um, this is proof in the pudding by like why this funding really matters. And I think anybody listening to this should go, you know, ask the governor and ask Representative Bertoglio to, you know, reconsider the budget outlined in HB 462. So that's House Bill 462. What? Why do you think? Why do you? Th- why do you think that they're doing wanting to take that money away? Like, if if because you know that that's just the obvious question to me. If if things t- we're living in like fat times, like there's a lot plenty of cash. Why would they want to do this? What's the, yeah, what's the deal there? What's their so a couple, couple answers. So if you look at the governor's budget, um, you know, just to be blunt there, his administration is prioritizing tax cuts. So that's where the majority of that money would go. Okay. Um, and if you look at, you know, the structure of that, it's definitely the people who stand to benefit the most from those, um, you know, it's the same old story you hear across across the West or across the country, right? Is that their tax breaks, tax breaks for the rich, you know, and and folks like you and I, you know, like we're we're going to be left with pennies when you look at the actual um, tax incentives that we'd be faced with. I so see. I just I definitely would encourage folks to take a close look at the governor's budget. You know, I don't want to sound too skeptical um, or conspiratorial about it, but um, that's just where the priorities are, and that's what's basically what they would, you know, they're signaling that they would rather do with that money. Um, but here's the other part of it too, Matt, is that there's also, you know, this goes a lot deeper. Like there's, we've talked to people that worked for FDP, um, in their lands department that, you know, have, have landowners that come to them and say, Hey, we want our property to be considered for a conservation easement. And they work with the property owner for years and the property owner on their own dime gets multiple appraisals, gets the property ready does a lot of, you know, changes and upgrades to the property to get it to the point where it can be conserved and, you know, dotting their I's, crossing their T's, going through all the hoops, getting it approved by the uh, the Fish and Wildlife Commission. And then it goes to the land board and it's just a total wild card about whether the land board is going to support it or not. So yeah, imagine- that's what happened. We have this one right outside of uh, the neighboring town where yep. I live, uh, Glendive, yep. called Horse Creek. And in 2016, that that was the deal there. They these this ranch did all the, these the property owners did all the work, and then at the last minute, the land board's like, eh. yeah, and like just you know, imagine if you were if you were trying. I to think get it did pass somehow. Did that pass? Yeah, it did, and that okay. that's a whole other story. Um, the governor basically realized that the way the law was written that that actually didn't need land board approval. Oh, for that's right. That's right. And so he went ahead and did that. And then the legislature promptly, the next legislative session, changed the law to make it as a requirement moving forward. So there's yeah. a little bit of, you know, politics back and forth there. But where we're at now, the land board does need approval on certain uh, conservation easements. I, I believe it's if it's over a million dollars. Um, so anyway, the but but here's the thing is that a lot of these projects where you have willing landowners, you know, they're not even seeing the light of day. They're not even able to get like phone calls back from the lands department. Um, Andrew McKean wrote a really good article about this. 
um, an outdoor life. I'll, I'll try to find the title of it, but, um, and so on the so one they, hand, they're interacting with FWP a little bit, yeah. but they can't even get FWP's attention. Correct. Um, and so it almost seems like there's, there's an effort afoot to like subdue some of these properties or some of these potential projects, right? There's, there's other ones still being considered. There's one being considered on the Northwest corner of the big snowies right now. I think the common deadline was just a few days ago, but, um, you know, it's not like there's nothing happening there, but we hear these stories of projects that would be really good projects that the landowner, you know, from no fault of their own cannot get a call back from the department. So they can't even get the process going after years of trying. And so part of us, you know, think, or part of, part of me at least thinks that there's an effort here to subdue these projects from even seeing the light of day and therefore spending less money in the program and they can shrug their shoulders and say, well, there's no more demand for it which is why we haven't been spending this money, which is then why we need less money, which is why we're cutting this budget. Mm-hmm. And so it just creates this downward spiral where less and less of this sort of work happens. And so we mm-hmm. are really trying to put our foot down and trying to say, no, the funding stays and we need to do a better job exposing these projects that, you know, that you're not considering that you should be and making sure that any good project that is seen the light of day, you know, we're doing our best to get broad support for it. So it can actually get across the finish line. So anyway, the 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 outdoor life article by andrew mckean that i was mentioning is it's a long title but it's called montana is on the brink of destroying one of its most successful conservation programs oh really you know out of anything i've seen out there it really does a good job explaining what we're seeing happening um so that's a big one the legislature right now um you know that's a negative that we're like hey if you guys care about public access if you care about you know publicly accessible acres and adding to state-owned lands um that's one that I would really encourage folks to speak up and oppose HB 462. Ironically, in the last week, we've actually seen two more bills introduced. Oh, uh, before we before before we move on to another one, yeah. Can, can I ask a question? Sure. Okay. So, the first first, I want to say something like the reason that. I no longer are in, am as engaged with these sorts of issues is because it's a matter of I don't have any time. Like what I'm doing takes a lot of time, you know, and what I think I'm doing is I'm doing two things. I got this nonprofit I work on. And the other thing is I'm trying to point out ways in which the hunting industry and hunting entertainment, I believe is destroying publicly accessible non-pay hunting. Uh, So I, so I always have to assume and hope that these conventional, um, mainstream, uncontroversial sorts of things i have to hope that the hunting industry and the hunting celebrities are helping with them because i'm focused elsewhere so we live in the land of hunting celebrities right we got meat eater several celebrities randy newberg um uh jason matzinger got who am i forgetting um uh, Ben O'Brien, 
are they engaged with this stuff? Are they bringing attention to this stuff on their platforms? Do you know? Yeah, and I'm open to the idea you just don't know, but I'm just curious if you do. Are they showing up? Um, you know, it's everything that I can do right now just to keep track of what's happened in the legislative session and try our best to educate and communicate with our members. So I, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to skirt the question, but I just really, especially now, am not up to speed on what hunting celebrities are or aren't doing. But I will say that our mutual friend, Ryan Callahan, has absolutely been bringing attention to both good bills and bad bills not just in Montana, but across the country, you know, he does it on a weekly basis. And not only that, but he was in Helena, I think three times in a week and a half period. You know, he was there one week and then the next week he was there twice. Um, He was speaking with a governor about this specific issue. He was speaking to um, Senator Heimbaugh about an issue we will talk about here in a minute. He was providing testimony at a hearing. He was cheering on people at the public lands rally motivating them to engage in these sort of things. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I think there's probably good actors and bad actors, Matt. So I think, you, you know, blaming hunting celebrities for not engaging with a broad bush. I just don't think it's fair. Well, I did I, I didn't, no, 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 no. I didn't, I just, I just asked, but it's, but it's a hard thing to like answer for, for the hunting celebrities as a whole too, right? Like you have to do it case by case. And I'm honestly like not the right person to ask about who's doing what and who's not. Well, but yeah, we I could see, get into that. I, I just think I think the fact that that you can use hunting as a means to become famous is the whole fucking issue. So, you know, it's like it I, I disagree with it hunting fame on so many levels that we it, we can't just have a simple discussion about it. Like yeah. I think the, using hunting to become famous is the root cause of so much that we're talking about but anyway let's move on to the other bills yeah uh well just one other thing anecdotally too you know ben o'brien was at the elk camp at the capitol rally uh, along with sam lundgren who you know they're both they both have really good, you know, platforms, or I guess really big platforms, you know, in the hunting and fishing world. And they both, they both showed up, you know, so I, again, they I don't better. want to barely criticize, but um, I want to give credit where credit's due. Yeah. So, I, well, I two- think that, like I say, I think that those people are destroying hunting. Um, so the more they give back, the more it's like, at least they're trying to mitigate their damage a little bit. Yep. They couldn't, well, in my mind, they couldn't possibly, they could not possibly completely mitigate offset the damage they're causing but they at least you know try a little bit so good on them yeah well i think i think a lot of i think a lot a lot do at least the ones that i you know interact with or or give any time of day you know looking at what they're doing or what they're saying or what they think um you know i purposely kind of pick and choose for that reason but anyway the other two bills i was going to mention i was just going to say like that's the big one that house bill 462 for Habitat Montana funding, but there's actually two other bills. And this is stuff, these are, that's something, both of these are things that, I wish I wouldn't have prefaced the podcast by saying that these, this is kind of a a Montana specific, because podcast, because this is stuff that pertains to, that is a value and pertains to anybody that hunts here, regardless of where they live. Not only that, I can promise you the same sort of shit is happening in their state. 
So they just need to pay attention. Like it, it, this is not, these are not unique fights we're facing here in Montana. And if no. there's any that I want no. people to have from this is that you need to start paying attention rather than just bitching about hunting influencers or this or that technology, making it easier for people to hunt, like actually show up and, and address some of these things that we're talking about now. Cause wait, 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 who, who, who are, who I'm the only guy, me and a couple meme sites are the only thing, the only hunting critique there is of hunting culture in the hunting industry. So like everybody else should be focused on the stuff you're talking about. I would be if I had the time, Yeah. but you know, I'm focused on what I think is most important. Do you see what I'm saying? So like the rest of you, everybody, all these people that are getting paid yeah. lots of money. I'm not, this costs me money. They fucking definitely should be. Let me rephrase. I can't tell you how many hunters I've I've talked to or met at a trailhead or I've met in the backcountry, you know, that just want to bitch about how many hunters they see or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it's not like how it used to be. And you ask them like, what, well, what are you doing about it? And they just shrug their shoulders, you know? Um, yeah. But, but in my mind, I to. am doing what I think is best to, to mitigate that. hundred percent. You're, you're definitely doing something right. But I, yeah. I'm just trying to say like, you know, for everyone else sitting on the sidelines, just complaining about it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Fingers, okay. Like, here's, Here's some ways you can actually take Absolutely. your frustration and be productive with it. So yes. um, the other I two agree. bills are Senate Bill 442 and House Bill 669. Again, both just trying to get rid of that Habitat Montana money for um, from the marijuana uh, tax and use it for other things. Like we don't need to get into the weeds on both of those, but same story. So there. where do you think that the the Habitat Montana one is going to end up? If you had it's to really tough because I think that we made our concerns loud and clear, and I think they're getting inundated with opposition. You know, there was, if you watch the question and answer on the committee, you know, one, one gentleman said that he wasn't exaggerating. And he said that I've gotten, you know, more letters and phone calls on this bill than I ever have. And he said, I think it's like a hundred to zero on everything I'm hearing from people. It's from people who oppose this. So even though there were a number of agency heads and people from the governor's you know, budget office there uh, supporting this bill, I think that average Montanans they're hearing from these, these, you know, their own constituents who they're there representing, I think overwhelmingly want to see this kept in there. So oh, okay, I think good. if we continue to keep up the pressure, you know, I, I think it's going to be a challenge that's probably going to that's probably going to be lingering this this problem all session. Um, I don't think that we're going to be able to resolve it anytime soon. I think it's we're out for a long fight for the next couple of months. But I hope that we can get to a point where we figure out a way to fund all these programs instead of having to make really tough cuts and decisions. Because okay, you know, so here's a here's a question that needs I, I obviously need to ask. Okay, so if I put this podcast out one week from today, will that give time people plenty of time to act? It depends which bill we're talking about. So, so I should try to get it out before that. Yeah, I mean things just move at a crazy pace. You know, we there's often times where a bill has a hearing 36 hours from now and we don't even know about it yet. Okay, uh, I'm going to put it out this week then. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'll 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 do it tomorrow morning. Um, but uh, here's the, the question, right? That we got to I got to ask: How do people listening to this? How do they find out what to do and when to do it? Oh, you're not going to like this answer, Matt. 
All right. Follow us on social media. Oh, I don't. I'm not opposed to so. <laughs> dude, have you ever read my hunting social media article? No, I have. I'm just saying that there's a lot of good. The first of paragraph good. of it yeah. is, I support social media that draws attention to issues of importance to the hunting community. Yep. So, but, but again, you and I will disagree in the fact that we've talked about this, Matt, that, you know, oftentimes to bring a lot of attention to an issue that we need people to pay attention dead to dead animals, it'll be a dead animal because nothing works better to get the hunting community, you know, or the fishing community to, to stop scrolling and, and double check something and maybe read the first few words of a caption than a dead, good old fashioned dead animal. Holy exactly. shit. Or, or a There's a dead fan. animal. I better vote. Yep. So. Um, but I would say, yeah, there's there's like so much happening at such a rapid pace that our Instagram page, the it's just uh, Montana BHA, is where we throw up a lot of intel. We share a lot of action alerts, um, a lot of stuff, a lot of activity in our stories. So you know, yeah, obviously go there. I encourage people to go there. You know, yep. our our email mailing list. You know, you can sign up for that, and we'll share as much as we can that way too. Um, we just don't have the bandwidth to send out an email every single day talking about what's happening. So it, typically the emails are action alerts when like things are getting hot and heavy and there's a really good chance to kill something that needs to be killed. Or there's, you know, a few people that need to be persuaded in order to keep a good idea alive. Um, or, you know, it's it's more of like a, an update on like what's happened the last couple of weeks sort of email. So that's, that's where I would say go. Um, if you want to, you know, stay up to speed on these things, there's other resources out there, but you know, that's, that's the one if you care about these issues that we're talking about today um, that I would definitely have to encourage um, just a couple more, Matt, because there's like, there's a lot. And I do want to just rattle through some of these other ones too, just so you can, you know, you guys can understand like some of these things we're working on and how it's really important to pay attention. You know, Senator Molnar, he's, um, uh, he's a Republican. I'm trying to double check where he's from. Um, but he, uh, he's got a bill that, it's, it's really interesting. So right now there are um, a couple programs that Montana FWP offers to encourage landowners who are adjacent to landlocked public lands that we all own um, to encourage them to allow you and I to drive across their property or to walk across their property to get to that public land. So it's not block management. They're not allowing people to hunt their own deeded property. They're just saying, sure the public can walk across to get to this other land you can't get to that you own. The so there's two Pala, Pala agreements, right? Right. Pala agreements, the public access land agreements. And then um, there's another one called the unlocking public lands program. Um, Senator Molnar, sorry, he's from Laurel. So I believe that's um, just West of Billings, but he, um, he worked with us to put forward this idea. Well, this fix, because the, the shortcoming of both of those bills in my mind, in our mind, is that one, they're not getting a ton of participation. And there's actually efforts right now to try to address that. One of them is removing a $5 application fee um, in hopes that that will, you know, remove any barrier from people. How many um, of them? How Okay. So how long has PALA been in existence and how many agreements have been completed? Since 2019. And I don't have the exact number, but it's not many. Yeah. Um, the unlocking public lands program is a tax incentive that they get rather than Pala, they get up to $15,000 in a payment plus other, you know, improvements possibly that would help facilitate that access. So that one's been more attractive, but the unlocking public lands program like virtually gets zero use. 
Um, and when when did that one come into existence? I'm not sure, actually. I, I think they came into existence around the same time, but that one may actually be a few years older than Pala. Um, and even when Pala really? was, oh, yeah, huh. even when Pala was introduced in 2019, we stood up and supported it. But when we did, we we called out one provision in there that gave us heartburn. We said we support this because as a whole, we will be better with this program in existence than without it. But the one provision that really gives us heartburn and it has ever since is that a landowner is not eligible for the program unless they hold the grazing lease to the adjacent public lands or nobody holds the grazing lease. So if somebody else leases the public's grass on that public land, then an adjacent landowner cannot allow us to walk across and enroll in this in this program. That is such bullshit. I've heard that, yeah. Took the words out of my mouth, yes. Because, of course, just because someone holds a lease to these, to these public lands does not mean they have exclusive public access, that they can prevent the public from being on there. It's still public lands. Um, that's just how it is. In some states, you know, the state lands, actually, the lease can be exclusive access. Not in Montana. Who, who funds these two programs? How are these two f- programs funded? Um, I would need to double check, but I believe it's another license dollars program okay so the um but anyway the the simple fix in our minds like if we want to try to encourage participation it's not just this five dollar application fee and getting rid of that the other thing they're trying to do is that currently you know the term in their definition of inaccessible is something that doesn't have an access point within two miles well they're gonna they're gonna shorten that and say within one mile now Again, in hopes of encouraging more participation in this program, and we're over here being like, "You guys are missing the point." <laughs> like, okay. I, 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 I'm trying to get my head around this. Just give me a second here. Okay. You're saying, but I would have thought that a lot of this land didn't have have access to it, no matter what, any at, at all. You couldn't get to it if there's no access to it at all. Then, then they're fine. Right. Then then they they like the the mileage requirement doesn't matter. What I'm saying is okay. that what I'm saying is that this could be like, okay, Matt, so say it's the Bighorn, you know, National Forest or something, right? That there's obviously access points to the national forest. But if you're looking at a parcel where there isn't an access point within two miles, they would be eligible to enroll in this program to create a new access component. So you can't say that even though you could walk two miles and get in there. Correct. I don't like that. Well, I mean, I, I didn't like the change either to go from two miles to one mile because yeah, like, that's well, bullshit. Like, we don't, we don't yeah. need an access they, they point be, every half just, mile here. It should just be um, pieces that there's no access to. So, I mean, I think that's like the intent of it. It's just really hard to like be that prescriptive with it. And again, how do you define that? And it's just, pretty it's, easily it's, it's if there's no that, way but. you can get to no legal access. It doesn't seem hard to, to flesh out. To me. I guess I would use the big snowy's WMA acquisition as an example. No one would argue that there wouldn't there needs to be an access on the southern portion of that range. And so even though there is legal access to other parts of that range, if you don't have horses, you're not getting to that spot. Yeah, but so, the more more typical scenario I would argue is one in which it's a ranch. Yeah. And in the middle of the ranch, there's three sections and you can't get to them. That's where we need Palo. Yeah, and I and I don't disagree. In, in those sort of situations, this would be 
you know, this is definitely eligible for use there. But if it's a mile, all that's doing is is providing yet another welfare check to people. So the thing is that the considerations are those are approved by the PLPW council. And the I we we flagged that objection too, Matt. And the explanation we were given is like, well, if it's a mile, but there's a river between it, or if it's a mile and there's a cliff face between it, you know, sometimes that's good. That's good. Cliffs and rivers are good. Having to, I wade rivers on purpose to get away from people. Yeah. I would, I would probably descend a cliff on purpose to get away from people. I mean, it's just stupid. I'm sorry to hear that that's part of it. Well, anyway, whether you agree with that or not, the reality is that those changes are being made in an effort to make this more, um, to, to have more participation in it. And we're over here saying, you guys are missing the point. The reason this isn't getting the participation it needs is because a pile of landowners are ineligible because somebody else is bullying them off of public lands by holding the lease and thinking they control uh-huh. the, the public access. And uh-huh. by having this, I'll intent, tell you another reason why it's not used. Because landowners don't know about it. I, I won't argue that too. Yep. And John Coons. Do a better job at that. Yep. My friend John Coons, tractor repairman and salesman, knows everybody. And he, he is so passionate about public access. He's talking to people in the country, ranchers, constantly. He's like always telling them, do you know you could be in block management? and get some money there. And there's this other thing that you could simultaneously be enrolled in called Pala. And they have no idea. And like, they understand that there's this black management thing, but they don't want to do it because they want to be able to manage their hunting. And he's like, he'll tell them, did you know that you can, you have how much flexibility you have through block management. You can pick how many hunters you want. You can schedule it yourself. You can have it scheduled at FWP. There's a real um, lack of understanding um, uh, amongst a lot of landowners about this stuff. So I I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. It's, according to John, that's another obstacle is they don't know that this stuff is available to, to them and how it works. 100%. Well, and our take is rather than perpetuating that line of thinking that if someone owns the lease and they control the access, we're yeah. really trying to get that change. And that's what representative would cross that part out and, and make anybody who is adjacent to inaccessible public lands eligible for this program, regardless of who holds the lease to it. So that's just an example of another program, you know, being considered right now or another change being considered in Helena right now um, that Montana should speak up and support Senate Bill 408. Um, so, you know, and, and there's, there's, there's a couple other ones that are kind of dealing with some of these things. Um, just one other one I want to touch before I hit the big one, but, um, representative green, he is a, uh, he's a Republican, um, also outside of billings and he's introducing a bill. This is now the third or fourth time. Um, conservation public access advocates have tried something like this, but it would increase the fine for legally blocking a public road. Right now, it's an embarrassingly low amount of $10 per day if someone wants to legally gate a county road and prevent the public from getting to their public lands. And it's so low that we've never been able to find an example of when it's actually been levied because it's just a joke. And so there's there's literally like no teeth in any sort of punishment um, associated with 
bullying the public off of their own county roads and, and their own lands. So we're trying to increase that to a minimum of $100 per day up to $500 per day. And that's being considered right now. We're expecting executive action like tomorrow, the 27th um, or Tuesday, the 28th. Like it's happening real quickly. Um, and that would be, you know, that's easy. so bizarre to me. Like it's so bizarre to me that that is so become so prevalent blocking these roads that you have to have special legislation on it. Like, you know what I mean? It's just it's kind of comical that you have to have special legislation about blocking a, a public road to prevent it. Yeah, and that's you know we can we can talk for two hours just about that one issue. But to save ourselves from doing that, you know, I would agree no, no, it's, just, it's just ridiculous that we have to do this. But what's more ridiculous, Matt, is that this is the third or fourth time we've tried. And it's not happening. Like we're still getting caught with yeah. resistance. Well, again, idea. that's a that's a consequence of of hunting promotion too. Um, yeah, or and or elections, you know. It, well, no, the fact that these guys are blocking the roads is a consequence of hunting promotion. The the value of access to wildlife is so it's so valuable now because of hunting promotion that they're trying to constrict access to it. By uh, illegal means. I'm not going to say that's not true, but I think the landowners, you know, who are accused of blocking us will tell a different story and then they'll point to hunter behavior and us and us, you know. Yeah. Well, I'd say that the lust, the lust that makes a hunter do something terrible is also a function of of hunting promotion. But it's like hunting promotion has made deer and elk and antelope and everything else into like diamonds and gold and people now just do will do shitty things to get diamonds and gold you know yep well so again that's uh house bill 486 representative green for increasing the fines for legally blocking a public road um the last one before i want to talk about a bill that we're bringing is i mentioned senator heimbaugh is the uh Republican out of Weeboo who's carrying that block management increase, mm-hmm. but he's also carrying a bill, Senate Bill 357, that seeks to limit the terms for any conservation easement using state dollars. So that'd be that Habitat Montana program um, to limit that to 40 years or less, which again, defeats the whole purpose of a conservation easement, um, comes with it a whole bunch of problems, but is also just like an incredibly unnecessary attack on private property rights because if a landowner wants that option, if they're looking for more of a temporary solution, whether it's two years or 10 years or 20 years to conserve their property and get compensated for it, great. There's already a menu of options available to them, including options from FWP specifically. And so to say that this one option that would be, you know, in perpetuity would then be limited to only, you know, four decades or less, it just seems unnecessary. And, you know, it's not an attack on hunters necessarily. It's an attack on private landowners. So mm. that's one that I would really encourage anybody listening to this to speak up to and okay and, and oppose Senate Bill three five seven just a really bad idea and that's that's one that you know our buddy Ryan Callahan showed up for he drove over from Bozeman to provide testimony at that hearing this was a week after he talked to Senator Heinbaugh about this and other bills so just an example of you know one of those hunt celebrities kind of putting his money where his mouth is um, 
So the last one that I want to talk to you about, Matt, it unfortunately does not have a bill number yet. It's still um, just an LC. And the reason why is that. What does that stand for? Um, you know, I'm actually not sure. I like w- operate in the world of a briefs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know, but it's basically when it's like still in draft form. And so sometimes the LC is visible on the website. Sometimes it's not quite there yet. Um, but, you know, once it becomes a bill, you'll see the SB Senate bill or HB House bill thrown in front of it. And what you're and about to discuss will become a bill at some point. It will. And the reason why it's not right now is there's a huge mad rush last week, maybe the week before and definitely this upcoming week to get bills heard and passed out of committee and, and voted on the floor to clear one chamber to go to the next before what's called the transmittal deadline. And the one exception to that transmittal deadline are revenue bills. And this is a revenue bill. So it's not it's not as urgent as these other things right now. So it's been kind of put on the back burner. That's why it doesn't have a bill number yet. And that's why people aren't you know out there advocating for it quite yet, or it hasn't had a hearing yet. Uh, but the bill is it's an interesting one for Montana BHA to engage in because as you know, you know, we're an organization that encourages um, and, and sticks up to defend access and opportunity. And we mostly work on that bottom number, right? The the number of huntable acres and public access and stuff like that. But here's an example of us working on the top number, um, which is the number of hunters. So that LC number is 3621, if folks wanted to look it up. It's being sponsored by Senator Flowers. He's a Democrat out of Belgrade, so just outside of Bozeman there. And um, the, the bill would do a number of things to help the issue of crowding in Montana. Um, first... It would strengthen the language around transferring or selling tags and assign a fine for that. So right now it's illegal to transfer or sell licenses in Montana, but the language around it doesn't is pretty weak. And we see efforts to do that almost every session. So we're gonna to, be able to, to, to weaken it further. Correct, or just to flat out allow it. Okay. So we're trying to like strengthen that that language up and, and send a clear message that like we really don't want to see this happening in Montana mm. and also assign a fine for that. A transferable tag would be like if a if a rancher had a landowner tag, he could then sell it. Correct. Okay. And you'll hear you'll hear organizations like Perk and you know some some kind of advocate for those, but you don't have to look further than New Mexico to understand why this is so problematic. And the oh, minute we yeah, start, or Colorado or Utah. Yeah, the minute we start using transferable licenses or permits as the bargaining chip to give to a landowner who provides, you know, quality um, habitat, for example, uh, we're, or even if they provide public access and that's the bargaining chip we give them is this transferable tag. We're actually starting to then incentivize the exact behavior we're trying to prevent because the minute you put that dollar value on that opportunity, then you see more no trespassing signs go up. Um, it becomes more exclusive access. And it's yeah, just it's really- like the, Then it becomes Cam Haynes and, and, and Joe Rogan hunting kind of stuff. Yeah, I I have no familiarity with that, but oh, you I'm don't. Not. That's all they do. That's all they haunt <laughs> yeah. is that. Yeah. So anyway, it's a lot of the, I, a lot of their tags they get for free because of the the advertising, but that you know, but they're hunting on tags that would sell for like fifteen twenty grand. Yep. You know, so they're, those guys are like they're the fucking worst like for publicly accessible hunting because they model to the next generation of hunters that that's how you do it, but. Yeah. So anyway, it's problematic. It's something we don't want to see happen here. And so that's the first thing this bill would do. Um, the second thing the bill would do is there's actually a situation where if there's a hundred permits available right now, um, you know, 
residents are eligible for the majority of those and, and non-residents are eligible for up to 10% of those. And if there's a situation where not enough residents apply on the first drawing, anything left over automatically goes to the non-residents in line. And we saw this happen a number of times last year because FWP messed up the drawing and kicked out a bunch of people that shouldn't have been kicked out. And so therefore the computer thought that not enough residents applied. So they gave all those opportunities to non-residents. And we wrote a piece exposing that and it created quite a stir. And FWP did try to correct it, but it still you know, ended up in a situation where you know, 30% of those permits were going to non-residents, for example. Um, and so just a quick little fix. Just we'll for, do a, to a clerical error. Correct. Yep. And, but also because of how in statute it's outlined how that situation is to be dealt with. It happens very rarely. Um, but we just were saying, okay, now that we know about this, that we know this is how it's supposed to be dealt with if, and when this ever happens, we need to fix it. And so this would be fixing it and just saying that, Hey, if there's a situation that there are leftover tags after that first draw, then FWP, you know, we're not being overly prescriptive about how they do it. We're just telling them that they need to figure out a system that gives residents and non-residents the opportunity to put their name in the hat for that second draw um, right. rather than just giving them to the non-residents who are in line. Okay. So that's the second thing it does. But the the third thing, and this is the big one, um, and this is one that I think folks outside of Montana might have a little heartburn when they first hear about it. But I think if you give us a minute to explain, you'll understand and probably agree that if you were in our situation, you would be looking at doing the same thing. And quite frankly, when we talk about protecting opportunity, it's protecting everybody's opportunity. Because if if opportunity, quote unquote, is is what you get when you know you show up to a trailhead and there's 30 trucks and you hike around for two days and don't see a single critter, you know, that's not the opportunity that anybody wants. So uh, we're trying to think about quality opportunity here and also like how we increase harvest rates and things like that. And we can't have those conversations, honestly, without talking about the hunter pressure and hunter crowding issues. Um, so the the bill would look to cap non-resident hunters in Montana across the board. And what what that means before people freak out is to say, well, hey, first of all, deer and elk are already capped. So we wouldn't be touching those at all. Those that would be unchanged. But there's a bunch also, of loopholes with those, right? That there are. And there's we don't need to get into this. Shit, we don't. Right? And there's also some separate if people are interested in that, there's actually a couple different competing or not competing, but like I wouldn't call them parallel bills, but other bills trying to solve those problems that are happening independently. The loophole um, problems. Where yeah, like one, one bill is actually trying to expand the loophole. Other ones are trying to close them. So okay. just pay attention to that stuff. But the deer knock stuff won't change with our legislation. What else wouldn't change is all the stuff that's already permitted because that's already capped and those are already splits and there's already numbers there. So that would be things like, you know, the big ones like moose, sheep, goat, um, all the all the uh, antelope opportunities in Montana are either capped or permitted for non-residents already. So those would be unchanged. Um, all the special limited entry deer and elk units, you know, those are already permitted. So those would be unchanged. So really, what what are we talking about here then? Well, what we're talking about are things like black bear, turkey, upland, migratory waterfowl, um, things like that, that are quite literally unlimited opportunities for non-residents right now. And we've just hit a point now where we need to address that. And it's not just because of the numbers, which I'll share with you, but it's also because the reality is that when we're looking at solving some of the elk distribution and hunter distribution issues, we can't just focus in on deer and elk tags. Again, those are already capped. Those are already controlled. And, there, and what happens is that an elk has no idea, Matt, if you and I are out there tromping around the woods with an elk tag in our pocket, or if we're looking for a fall bear, 
or if we're out there with our shotguns looking for upland birds or what, what, you know, whatever, or we have a cow B tag or a doe tag, you know, they have no idea. They see our hunter orange and they, they run for private refuge. So the idea is that we need to address this, you know, hunter crowding issue across the board. And so that's why we're looking at capping these things. And again, we're kind of as a rule, our organization definitely defends the right of fish and wildlife commissions and our biologists and the departments to, to make these sort of decisions. We really don't like seeing citizen legislatures kind of dabble in fish and wildlife management decisions. Like it's, it's impossible to, to get away from it, but we often. Wait, wait, help me understand the distinction again, like this between legislators, legislators and the, and citizens. Yeah. So, so the citizen commission, so like the fish and wildlife commission, um, or the citizen legislature. So basically what, what I'm saying is that a lot of these fish and wildlife decisions are made at the legislature. And almost as like almost as a rule, we oftentimes will stand up and say, "Hey, thanks. Here's what we think about this." But also as a reminder, you know, we'd appreciate if this oper- or if this decision was actually made by the Fish and Wildlife Commission or the department, the people working there, the experts on this issue, rather than you know the citizen legislature that I'm talking to right now. And I see kind of like okay. make that message when you're talking to the citizen legislator and not yeah, yeah. think it's hard. But the reality is that these are people that you know could be real estate agents or they could mm. be, you know, tax accountants. Like they're not they could have all kinds of ulterior motives. Yes. So um, anyway, along those lines, we're not, we're not trying to be really prescriptive with this bill. We're not saying that the black bear cat needs to be X. We're not, we're not throwing out numbers for any of that. Actually. We're not saying it needs to be a percentage of total number of hunters. What we're saying is that it's time for the commission and the department to cap all of these things. And we look forward to working with the commission and the department and outfitters and non-residents and other stakeholders to figure out what those numbers should be. That's what this bill would do. And part of the reason why we think that the time has come to have these conversations, let me just throw some numbers out. So across the West, you know, I think it's like generally acceptable that it's not just across the West, it's across the country, but the West specifically that, um, you know, non-resident opportunities cost more and they are they're divvied up in a way where the privilege goes to residents. So in some states, the number of tags like for non-residents will hover around eight percent. In other states, it's ten percent. Some it's twelve. Um, in Montana, it's up to ten percent in anything that's permitted. But again, on those unlimited things, there is no cap. There's no ratio. There's nothing. It's literally unlimited. So what that does, the situation that that's created is last year in Montana, do you want to guess, Matt, what percent of hunters, not licensed sales, but number of hunters in Montana were non-residents? Okay. How did they quantify that if it's not from licenses? Because everybody needs to have a base hunting license. Okay. I see. Okay. So we're, we're including turkey and black bear and everything? Yep. So if someone buys a base hunting license, they are a hunter. Okay. And what percentage of hunters in Montana last year do you think were non-residents? 30%. Pretty good guess. 29%. Mm. So when people hear that, whether they're inside the state or outside the state, I think, you know, almost without question, they look at that like, okay, you're right. That that number does seem a little high. 29% is, is pretty high. So yeah, because a lot of states will have like 
it's 10%, right? Correct. Like Wyoming why, is. Yep. And the reason why that, that doesn't happen here is that Montana only has like a little over a million people. And so we haven't gotten to the point where we need to cap all of our opportunities. So there is no. But Wyoming has split. even fewer. They do. And they actually just decrease even more. Um, but anyway. The, so the, the population uh, decreased or you're saying no, the, decreased the, the opportunity number of, for. The percentage of non-resident hunters are going to allow. Okay. Yeah. Um, at least for the the big the big three species, I believe. Um, so anyway, here's some other numbers, Matt, to consider. Um, you know, and and to be fair, like people are like, yeah, okay, but really, is is non-resident hunting pressure the problem? Like, what about your own residents? Where you know, how many how many new hunters have been added in Montana the last ten years? Right, like that's that's a fair point to bring up, and it's one that I think we should address. Well, here's the reality. In the last decade, the number of resident hunters in Montana has dropped 8%. Really? The number of non-resident hunters? Yes. The number of non-resident hunters in Montana has ju- jumped 44%. 8% fewer Montanans hunt? Correct. That okay, so here's what let me get let me get the, of the people you're saying per capita it's lower. Correct. Now, is there any? So there, there could be more people? Montanans hunting now. No, 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 no. I'm talking total number of hunters has dropped eight percent in Montana. Total number of resident. Okay, hunters. so not not per not capita. Per capita. No. Okay. Yep. And so, and again, like because they're frustrated because it's all getting leased <laughs> up. Maybe, and also like your anecdotal observations to the contrary. You know, I'm not going to to fault those because the reality. Oh, you know is what happened between things. 2012 and 2016 with leasing in Montana, according to Outdoor Life. I just read no, this. I feel like you're distracting me. Um, it went from just okay. I'll just tell you, between 2012 and 2016, it went from seven million acres to 28 million acres in the state. Yeah, that's a problem. So again, I was going to say like so that's probably why there's fewer residents. Yeah. So even even with fewer resident hunters, I think you can see you know why your observations of having more people at the trailhead and more people in the woods are still true because when we're losing 1.5 million acres of properties enrolled in block management, or hunters are getting into more hunting opportunities than they used to, you know, or they're they're hunting for longer. Um, non-residents are coming here and staying longer. Like all of these things factor into what we're seeing on the ground, right? So it's mm-hmm. important to, to look at the whole picture. But here are some other numbers too. Um, so in just the last five years, from 2018 season to the 2022 season, the number of non-resident waterfowls in Montana, waterfowl hunters in Montana is up 29%. The number of upland bird hunters is up 34%. The number of non-resident elk bee hunters, so cow hunters, up 23%. Deer bee hunters, 20%. Um, and it gets worse for bears and turkeys. So in the last five years, the number of non-resident turkey hunters has almost tripled. Hunting um, promotion. And the number of non-resident bear hunters is up Hunting 47%, promotion. So almost yeah, double. Perfectly. Well, hunting promotion, sure. But here's another factor to consider. You can no longer spring bear hunt in California. Or in Washington. So if you like to if you like to bear hunt in those two states, where are you gonna go? Well, it's unlimited opportunity in Montana right now. Right. So that's why we're seeing some of this stuff. And again, what we're proposing is not really any reduction at all, to be honest with you. And some people won't want to hear that, right? Some residents are like, we need to cut these opportunities down right right now. 
Well, we're, what we're proposing is not that. It's not. It's not an extreme. It's just saying that hey, it's time to look at this and to cap this. Um, so that cap could be, you know, higher than it well, is now. I mean, that, the that's where it but, is now. But, you know, the, the goal there would be that to make few, make there be fewer non-residents. Um, potentially, or maybe it's just to not let it get much worse. Right. So it, it just kind of depends who you ask and, and what mm-hmm. we're trying to do here. Yeah, we're just yeah, saying yeah. time has come to have a grown up conversation about unlimited hunting pressure and whether we can sustain that or not. And even, even folks like the Montana outfitters here that I talked to about this idea, their, their first reaction is like, hell no, that's going to limit our opportunity, our business opportunity. Right. But when you talk to them for a little bit, they're, they're not dumb. They're really reasonable people. And they, they fully understand that they have a unique business model in the sense that they can't expect unlimited growth. There's a very real ceiling there where if they continue to push for more and more and more and allow you know this open door policy in Montana, they're actually going to be hurting the very resource and the very service that they offer. So they'll be shooting themselves in the foot. Now, will we disagree on where that line is? Probably. But they're at least willing to say like, you're right, you know, this can't be unlimited forever. They may not think there's a problem now. They, they, they may think there is. Um, the reality is that they just want to make sure that their business can continue to operate. And I would point to the fact that their business does continue to operate and deer and elk tags have been capped for a few decades. So we've already proven that we can still keep them afloat with caps. Um, yeah. Just have to figure out a way to, to land on numbers that are reasonable. Um so anyway, bear that's- hunting. I've gotten several e- e- emails from Montanans expressing frustration about bear hunting in the state. Yeah. Like people that have hunted bears here for decades, they're like, or a decade or more. They're like, I never used to see vehicles at the trailhead when I was bear hunting. One guy said, I had a guy shoot a bear right out from underneath me last year. Like, it sounds like it's a freaking zoo. I don't, I've made my peace with the bear. So yep. I don't, I don't see it, but. Yeah, and, you know, I think there are very many reasons to point to about the popularity on that one alone. You know, I know for me personally, when I was a cold-blooded killer for deer and elk and, and nothing else, you know, I I didn't really have any interest. Well, I guess turkeys too, but I didn't really have any interest in, 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 uh, in bear hunting. And then, honestly, I, I had a friend feed me bear meat a number of times, and it kind of changed some of my misperceptions on eating black bear and then my interest in potentially hunting them changed and now for five or six years you know i've like bear hunting is one of my favorite things to do and my wife continues to guilt me you know when when i go for a year or two without bringing home bear fat because it's like one of her favorite things to cook with and bake with um so it you know, at least for me, anecdotally, it had nothing to do with, with influencers or hunting celebrities kind of promoting bear hunting. It was more about like having this disconnect between whether bear meat was good and edible and bear fat was good and edible or not. And once yeah. I was corrected, um, it kind of just opened, opened the door for me. Um, hey, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, so I'm very careful about, I, I just really don't have a stance. If you look at my stances on my website and I don't have a stance on resident preference and whether, you know, that should be tightened up or, or, or loosened. I, I, I just don't have a stance on it. Yeah. I guess I want to say that because I guess on my podcast that have very, you're, you put out a very measured 
perspective and what you're trying to accomplish in Montana. Um, but some of my guests have very strong in-state preference attitudes. And I always get a lot of emails after those episodes of people saying like from the East that would like to hunt out here, um, expressing concern about that. Um, but, uh, so, but I just, I think it's interesting that I found, I wish I tried to find it right before the, we recorded, but there's a quote in the journal of forestry from this is Aldo Leopold writing in 1919. He devotes like a, a very lengthy paragraph to how he thinks that um, tag should be preferentially given to people that live in the state. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of like what's commonly accepted, right? Is that state residents, they, you know, they pay taxes, they live here year round, they deal with the wildlife year round. The state, you know, if you look at the state constitutions, like the state does own the wildlife, right? Um, that that's where that priority comes from. But at the same time, we also recognize that this is not a closed door policy. And to be completely honest with you, our non-residents pay most of our bills here in Montana, you know, most of the block management stuff, like and all the things we talked about, those good programs. Mon- the non-residents are the ones footing the bill. I mean, I can go get an elk tag for 20 bucks here in Montana. And, you know, for a non-resident to come hunt, you're looking at over a thousand bucks to come hunt elk, you know, and deer combo tag. I think it's like 1150 bucks or something. Plus another hundred bucks if you want to get a, a preference point. So um, we're definitely like incredibly appreciative of non-residents coming here to hunt. We want to leave our doors open, but we also just want to recognize that we want to protect the quality opportunities for both residents and non-residents. Yeah. Yeah. And having unfettered, you know, unlimited access and opportunity here. It's just, it's a fool's errand to think that that's going to be sustainable. So, um, you know, and, and I also just want to remind our non-resident, you know, friends that it's not like Montana BHA isn't sticking up for you either. I mean, there's, there's a bill that we opposed last session or just last week that seeks to give, large non-resident landowners who own 2,500 acres or more, 15% of the non-resident elk and deer tags, or at least elk tags. And we, we were one of the only people to stand up and oppose that. Mm. Um, so just, you know, if you guys are worried about your deer and elk hunting opportunities in Montana, like that's going to take 15% right off the cap, right off the top. Is there so, enough, is there, are there enough elk on lands owned by absentee landowners? to support that kind of harvest? Um, you know, it's really hard to answer that because it all depends on the property and where it's at, right? If you're talking about properties in Northwest Montana, I'd probably say no. If you're talking yeah, about- Yeah, but I'm saying they're going to get 15%- They're going to give 15% of not out-of-state elk tags to people that live out-of-state but own land here. Yep. Is there enough of that land to support that many- tags so if that's to be determined and the reality is that if it is if it is over prescribed then anything left over would go back to the general non-resident draw oh okay um but you know they they're trying to make it consistent with the resident landowner preference but that's a whole nother story like that that whole bill in my opinion um got messed up and it really should have been about the permitted opportunities for limited entry districts 
and not 15% of the 17,000, you know, elk tags that they give out each year um, going to large, wealthy, non-resident landowners. That would um, almost give them, wouldn't that give, wouldn't that give land absentee landowners more opportunity than in-state landowners? No, because in-state landowners can just go buy those tags over the counter. So we're not talking about permitted districts. We're talking about the seventeen thousand. Not elk. not out here. They can't. Yeah. Well, there they would they would get preferential treatment as well um, by getting an extra bonus point um, if they enrolled in public access. We like that carrot approach, but we just don't think it's going to be enough to really change behavior. Oh, wait. With this fifteen percent go of the tags going to people who live out of state but own land here, they'd, they'd have to allow some public access. No, to get a bonus point, they would have to. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So there, again, like the, the theory around this isn't terrible, but what we're looking at now in bill form, I think is a pretty bad idea. Um, but anyway, my, my point being that we like, we stick up for non-residents. It's not just like, we're trying to like build these walls and say, you're not, you're not allowed to come here. And last session, we were like the loudest vocal opposition to the pushes to give, you know, um, outfitted clientele from out of state, 60% of the elk and deer tags. And then it was amended down to 40%. And we still pushed back and opposed it and killed it. And then on the second to the last day of the session, they snuck in a preferential treatment that gives them double bone or double preference points if they don't draw. Um, so we don't need to like rip off that wound and talk about it again. But I just bringing it up to say like we're not anti-non-resident. You know, we we do and have stuck up for the non-resident opportunities, especially the, you know, our DIY kind of backcountry hunter brethren. Um, you know, we have a lot of BHA members that go guided too. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. We actually encourage it. And when we talk about hunter distribution, having people go guided isn't a terrible thing because that I just oppose lease land. I I oppose lease land got uh, out guided hunts for a variety of reasons. That's true. I, I guess my argument is that if there's properties that it's either going to be no hunting or least hunting only, that's the scenario I'm looking at where I'm like, well, I guess it's better than no hunting at all yeah um, well i don't i don't even consider it hunting myself so and it's hard to say it's hard to say like what if it wasn't guided if it wasn't guided it wouldn't be in in block management or or the landowner wouldn't be amenable to door banging i mean how do you know you don't you never know you just know that some fraction of some fraction of the land that's at least i just lost access to a place that i used to hunt with friends and stuff quite a bit up in the breaks and now with an outfitter um you know that some fraction of the land that's out there is that's leased yeah joe schmo could go on there if it wasn't leased and then the, and the fact that i just don't i don't think of pay hunting i don't even consider it hunting it, it's gotcha. like so i yeah i just i, I i'm all about if you want to be a hunting guide or an outfitter and take people out on lands that I can hunt to go for it, but don't lock me out is my stance. Well, and without disagreeing with you on that, like without going down that rabbit hole, I would just say that, you know, just to repeat like that we're, we're not anti-outfitter. We think they provide, you know, a valuable service. There's a lot of like the biggest wild land, you know, wilderness, public land advocates also happen to be outfitters right so yeah i'm down with all a lot that. of overlap there um 
but at the same time, regardless of who it is, we just, you know, firmly disagree in anything but an equitable allocation of the public resource opportunities. So we don't like guaranteed set asides really for any user group, whether mm-hmm. that's outfitted or landowner or residents um, who own this much land or non-residents who own this much land, or if it's people who hunt with this weapon versus that weapon, you know, like we just think that the opportunities should be administered fairly and equitably and with a, you know, with biologists input and looking at harvest rates and how much we can withstand to still offer quality opportunities and get the harvest we need to manage the wildlife where we need to. Um, and so that's, you know, just in principle, why we pushed back on those outfitted guarantees last session. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, just to send the message to anyone outside of Montana listening to this, thinking that we might be unfairly going after non-resident hunters. The reality is that like, we've actually had your back and stuck up for you way more than, than not. And this, and this is something to protect quality opportunities, not just for us, but for you too. So, you know, could potentially this mean that you don't get to hunt bears in Montana every single year you 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 know you may have to sit one of five years out because of the demand outpacing the opportunity yeah that's potentially a scenario but at the same time that may protect your quality opportunity that when you are here hunting bears it's it's worth it you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars you're spending to get here and you're spending on a license because you have a good chance of harvesting a bear so it's it's really not, I don't think it's a selfish thing that we're doing here. I think it is to protect the resource and to protect the quality opportunity. And to be honest with you, Matt, like the resident hunters, they have, they're going to have their come to Jesus moment here soon too. You know, like we're, we're potentially, you know, if, if this trend continues where we keep losing resident hunters, then that's maybe not something we need to talk about, but the way the population in Montana is increasing and at least anecdotally, the sort of people that I see that we're attracting to the state that appear to like be into this sort of thing. Um, again, that just could be the circles I run in, but I, I feel like, you know, at some point Montana residents will have to figure out how to limit and disperse pressure too. you know um, there was a, a whole bunch of uproar about the pick your season, pick your weapon proposal that was put forward by, you know, a citizen committee earlier this fall. And I know you and I kind of went back and forth on that. Um, and I, and I like, don't, I think in a lot of ways that it's unavoidable. Like it's, it, we're going to have to have that conversation at some point. My, my stance on it is I firmly believe that like there are six other things we need to do first to address hunter problem and elk and deer distribution. That if we don't do these things first, having residents pick a bow or pick a rifle as their one opportunity will have no impact. It's, it's not going to fix the problem. And so, but the reason I'm saying that is that this is kind of step one of like capping non-residents and recognizing that in the last 10 years, the number of resident hunters has dropped, like I said, 8%. So it's actually dropped, um, talking individuals here, 13,578 fewer people hunt in 2022 than they did in 2012 with Montana plates. But the number of non-resident hunters in Montana in that same time time span has increased 31,681. And so to me, like that dynamic is some of the lower hanging fruit that we need to address when we talk about hunter distribution, a coupled with all the things that is rattled off that we're doing to increase public access, to defend public access, to incentivize, you know, voluntary public access. Like 
Um, all of those things are equally, if not more important than talking about tag allocations, but it definitely is something that we can't avoid any longer. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, that was very, very informative. I really appreciate the update on what's going on. And um, I encourage anybody listening to get involved and, and, and fight the fight. So anything else? No, I would just echo that. I would just say like, you know, pay attention, follow Montana BHA, make phone calls, send emails. Um, but most importantly, like sign up to register to provide remote testimony or try to get to Helena in person if you can. Yeah. You know, the, we like to say that like sending an email is worth one point, making a phone call is worth five points. Well, providing virtual testimony is worth 30 and showing up in person is worth a hundred points. No. Huh? Because that's how you really influence these people. And yeah. Um, hate to say it, but a lot of these emails and, and letters we're sending with over 2000 bills, you know, being introduced and heard in, in less than 90 days in Montana right now, they just, they don't have the bandwidth to read everything we're sending them. So if you want to get their attention, you need to speak slowly to them in person, either through a computer or standing there in the room with them. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Um, I, I'm, I'm always impressed by your level of understanding of what's going on in Helena. So thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it, Matt. And I love your passion and I share, I share it, man. Um, Looking forward to getting out with you or at least having a beer with you next time we can. Yeah. It's always a pleasure. Yep. All right. Take care. You too. Bye.